Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chapter 5: The Order of the Phoenix. Your my dear old mum, yeah, said Sirius. We've been trying to get her down for a month, but we think she put a permanent sticking charm on the back of the canvas. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So for our Every Flavored Bean today, Matt, we are inspired by Grimald Place, and we are going to share stories about odd places that we've stayed. You and I have both traveled a lot, and I bet we've both stayed in some really strange places over the years. And so we'll be sharing those stories in conversation with everybody staying at Grimald Place. And you can sign up for that amazing perk at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And also, everyone, I would like to remind you that you can review us on Apple Podcasts. And this is a free way to support the show. Matt, you have a story for us on the theme of comparison. I would do a better job with this story, but why don't you go ahead? <laughs> well, I think my story is pretty good, too, but I acknowledge the comparison. I have an older brother. His name is Dan. And my brother Dan is kind of a genius. <laughs> He's like kind of a savant. His brain just like works slightly differently. He has this party trick where like if you ask him the number one song from any week from about 1975 to 1989, he will tell you what it was. His brain like stores stuff and he knows stuff. When he went to elementary school in kindergarten, he could draw a map of the United States with all the state capitals labeled. Right. I don't so, like him at all. So he's very he's just got he's got this this weird brain. And so he did really well in elementary school. Like in yeah. first grade, they were trotting him into the teacher's lounge to have him do orations to them from books he was reading. Like he's this kind of this kind of smart. When I went to kindergarten, my mom likes to say, I only knew one letter, the letter B, and that's all I needed to know. Uh -huh. <laughs> that was that was my position on things. So I was different than my brother. And and for the most part, I didn't feel it through elementary school. But in fifth grade for reading, I had Mrs. Hasselbrink. And Mrs. Hasselbrink was like the first 
kind of stern teacher I had. She wasn't, I don't want to get the wrong impression, just in case Mrs. Hasselbrink or her children are listening to this. She was a kind person. She was a nice person. But she was a very strict teacher and a very, you know, she was, she didn't really put up a lot of nonsense in her classroom. And she also was fairly demanding of these fifth graders, right? Like she would ask us to read stuff. She asked us to assignments. And we had homework in that class. It was like a big step up from fourth grade reading. It felt like we had taken a leap. And she was just, you know, she said, if you expect a lot of a child, they will they will do a lot. That was kind of her approach, I think, right? And Mrs. Hasselbrink loved my brother. Like when I showed up, she was super excited to see me. I still can't draw a map of the United States with all the state capitals labeled, right? But she thought I was that kind of kid. And I proved myself to not be that kind of kid pretty quickly. And I remember one moment in particular, I think it was, it must have been in the first half of the semester, I'd been feeling this pressure from her and this like constant look of disappointment on her face whenever I would do anything. There was a particular project I had to produce for this class. It was homework, new to homework in fifth grade. And there was some kind of like, I had to make like a poster advertising a trip Mm -hmm. to San Francisco for some story we had read. I can't remember what it was. I also didn't remember then because I was finishing this project like the morning before I had to go to school. I was like, oh, the poster. So I I drew this thing very quickly and hastily. And I stood up and tried to pretend that I had been working on this thing for several days. And I presented my poster to the whole class. And I sat down and I just, you know, kind of felt sheepish. And I looked across the classroom that Mrs. Hasselbrink at her desk at the back of the room. And she just like the look she gave me. I don't think I knew what the word withering meant at the time. Yeah. But it was a withering look. I was just like, oh, I'm letting her down. But was I letting her down? I was just being me. Yeah. I wasn't my brother. And I was suffering from a comparison. Matt, I think that that story is so right, because I bet that there's someone else in your class, right, who did the same level of work as you. And Mrs. Hasselbrink was probably like, yeah, it was fine. Right. That was fine. Yeah. Yeah. But because you were suffering by comparison with Dan, right, there there were just like these different expectations. And I know that there is the expression, comparison is the thief of joy. And I always think of that as me comparing myself to someone else. But I think that your story is showing us that also being compared can be the thief of joy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was in, I was like 11. Yeah. I'm sure I was doing something fun the day before when I wasn't doing my project. Yeah. And it was done. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> right? I did it. You probably drew the Golden Gate Bridge. It was probably great. Probably did. I remember the bubble letters spelling Frisco <laughs> at the top of it. I specifically remember that part of it because I remember drawing it and thinking, those don't look good. <laughs> but there's no time. I, I got to keep going. There's no time. Well, Matt, let's now show the people what comparison looks like. I'll do a great job with the 30-second recap, and then you'll go. We're each going to do our own jobs. Yes, that's right. We're going to do it in our own way, and neither is better or worse. That's right. We need the bumblebee and the butterfly. That's right. Okay. Three, two, one. Go. So Harry is at Grimmauld Place and everybody is arguing about who should know what. And Molly is like, they are children. Let them be children. And Sirius is like, I would have a lot of questions if I were Harry. And they all have dinner together. And Tonks is very charming and is like constantly changing the way that she looks. And Mundungus is telling stories about times that he's ripped people off. And Molly doesn't let Ginny hear what's going on, even though everybody else gets to hear what's going on. And Arthur doesn't even side with Molly. And I feel like that's a move. 
It was. It was a move. It's a move. Okay. Everybody erase how I did. And now, Matt, you Which go. was excellent in its own right. In its own beautiful way. Three, two, one, go. So Sirius says, hey, you met my mom. And then they go down <laughs> to dinner and Molly is cooking, but the knives are cooking themselves and people are helping. And Fred and George spill a bunch of stuff everywhere. And she gets mad. Don't do magic all the time. And then they have their dinner and it's delicious. And Mundungus is telling stories and Tonks is changing her nose. And then Harry's like, I want to know stuff. And Sirius is like, you can know stuff. And Molly's like, you can't know stuff. And Arthur's like, he can know stuff. And then everyone else, is, the other kids are like, we want to know stuff. And she says, okay, all you can know stuff except for Ginny. And then they tell Harry a lot of things. And at the end, Molly's like, that's enough. Let's go to bed. Yep. I like that neither of us actually shared what they told them. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. the most interesting is the argument. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's like... Process, not content. Voldemort, Dumbledore, Fudge, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So Matt, there's a lot of arguing in this chapter. And I, I think that yeah. it's great that we were doing this theme of comparison because I do think that arguing is often about comparing, right? Hmm. I do all of this and you don't, right? Like if we think of all like the fights that we have with our siblings or the fights that we have with our partners, right? Like I'm right and you're wrong. Right. (laughs) I'm (laughs) right. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Fighting is all about comparison. And there is a lot of fighting in this chapter over what to do with Harry. And one of the things that's so interesting about this argument is that Molly and Sirius are sort of like the main fighters in this argument, although Lupin chimes in and, you know, Arthur chimes in. But they are arguing about who has more of a right to love Harry and therefore decide things on his behalf. And I guess these are two separate things, but let's take the first one first. It's such an interesting argument. Who loves this child more and who has more of a right to love this child? Yeah, boy, that's really right. In our notes for this episode, I noticed all the comparison, but I I just had like a sense of it. I was like, I knew something was being compared, but I wasn't. But you're right. Like, that's where it's happening. They're arguing over who has the greater responsibility for Harry, right? And I think that, I mean, if I might tweak your point a little bit, we'll see what you think about this. I think for Molly, like, loving Harry is what gives her responsibility over him. Whereas for Sirius, Sirius loves Harry, right? But his is tangled up in a bunch of other emotions and things. And he actually just doesn't know Harry as much or as well as Molly does, right? And Molly knows that, right? And so I think what they're comparing is like, who's responsible for this boy? Molly's like, I am because I know him and I love him and I know what's best for him. And Sirius is like, I am because I'm a godfather. Yeah. Like, I was told to be responsible for him, so it's me. I was chosen. And all that stuff doesn't matter. I was chosen, right? And so, like, what they're comparing is, like, these credentials. Like, your credentials don't count with me because I was the one chosen. And Molly's like, your credentials don't count with me because you don't know him. You don't know what's best for him, and I do. And the comparison is, like, it it really is kind of like apples and oranges. It's just, like, one person's like, no, apples are better, and the other one's like, no, oranges are better. Yeah. I do have to shout out, this has nothing to do with comparison, but the moment where... Sirius says he's not your child and Molly says he's as good as is just one of the amazing moments of the series, right? Like nobody has asked her to step into this role. There's nothing formalized about it. She financially sort of can't afford it, right? But she's just like, I love him and would sacrifice for him in the exact same way that I would do for any of my children. And therefore, right? Like, I don't know. 
is that about comparison? Like, I compare him to the rest of my children and find him equal? I think it is. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say that. I think that this is a different kind of comparison. It's a way for her to justify, like, what makes one responsible is care, is love. Right. right? That care has the double meaning. It means both, like, to have feelings for someone, but also to do the thing, to take care of them, right? And she's like, I'm in. I'm bought in. He may as well be one of my children. Right. It's chosen family. What yeah. makes one the one that you are responsible for is your love for them. And Molly has that. But like I said, it, again, even that is what Sirius is thinking. And I side with Molly here. I think we both do. But what Sirius th- is thinking here is like, actually, no, what makes a child your child is the child is given to you by whatever <laughs> circumstance or, you know, legal, you know, benefaction I'm the godfather. I was chosen to take care of him. So I'm the one that makes the decision. And the love argument doesn't really care with him. And again, I do think that Sirius does care about Harry genuinely. Of course. But there are, you know, he's not great at it. We see some of that in this chapter, too. He's not he's not great at it. And if you were a neutral observer watching Molly's actions towards Harry in this chapter and Sirius's, you'd be like, oh, Sirius isn't great at this. Maybe Molly <laughs> should be the one <laughs> deciding. Yeah, and Molly brings up another point of comparison, right? She essentially accuses Sirius of constantly comparing Harry and James and of therefore equating Harry and James, of looking at Harry. And I can imagine, right, Harry looks just like James did when Sirius and James were best friends, right? Like there's almost this like time travel aspect of it because James died so young, he has never aged in Sirius's mind. And so I can really imagine just like the uncanniness of seeing someone who looks just like your best friend and sounds just like your best friend and how you remember them. And of course that comparison is going to be instantaneous and you're not going to be able to totally separate yourself from it. Whereas Molly has known Harry since he was littler and didn't look like James and she wasn't as close to James. So there wasn't that constant, easy comparison. So I feel for Sirius in the fact that he is constantly, I don't know, is it even more than comparing? Is it just conflating? Yeah. Harry and James, but it's really detrimental that he's not separating these two, right? In the same way, and this is the way that I think it's similar to comparison, in the same way that Mrs. Hasselbrink wasn't separating you and Dan, right? Sirius yeah. isn't separating out Harry and James. Yeah, it's conflation, not comparison. I guess, yeah, and maybe there is a blurry line there because when you when you start conflating rather than comparing, then you're you're imposing one upon the other. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, and I also think, Vanessa, that speaks to, like, what else is going on with Molly's argument or their argument about who is responsible for Harry. Because it's not just there's a disagreement about what grounds responsibility. It's not just like, oh, I ground mine in in love and you ground yours in being chosen. It's also like Molly just thinks I'm better at this than you, (laughs) right? Like, I'm because I see him as a child and you don't. And even if you did see him as a child, I'm better at taking care of children than you are. And by the way, she's right on all of these things, right? And that really is different. And we know she's right because, you know, Sirius does some stuff in this chapter that suggests that he isn't really thinking of Harry as a child to be cared for. He is treating Harry as if he's a peer, right? So like at the beginning of the chapter, when Sirius says, oh, you've met my mother, right? And they start talking and Harry's, you know, he had sort of a tantrum with Ron and Hermione and he's shouting through the house and everyone's hearing him and then coming to see him because he's being so loud and all these things, right? 
And then Sirius is like, oh, you think you had a bad boy? I had a lot worse. I wish I could have been attacked by Dementors then. My summer would have been more exciting, right? Like all these inappropriate things to say to a kid who's been traumatized and and is upset and is going through something emotionally. Like Sirius is just kind of feeling sorry for himself and wants Harry to take care of him right. rather than to kind of be his guardian, be his caretaker. And these are the kinds of things that Sirius does that kind of reveal he doesn't really know how to deal with a 15-year-old, especially a 15-year-old who is going through something, who's had a really terrible summer, a traumatic summer, who's also, you know, has a traumatic childhood for, right? He, Sirius is not there. Sirius is just like, oh, you know, like like he's talking to his buddy. Like, you want you think your summer was yeah. bad, listen to mine, right? That's not what Harry needs. Yeah, this is the kind of comparison that you can do with a close friend or a sibling, right? Like, this is the kind of comparison that works among peers of, for example, this is a fight that my brothers and I have all the time, right? My older brother and I are closer in age than my younger brother. There's a pretty big gap. And we will like say to my younger brother, you didn't even have the same parents that we had, right? And we'll compare, like, we got punished in this way. You never got punished at all, right? And this is like a fun, silly series of conversations among peers. But once there's a power difference, right? Like, if I were to say to the kids, like, you never pay the bills. I always pay the bills, right? It's like, well, one of us has the responsibility to pay the bills and the other has the responsibility to be a child. And Sirius is just, by conflating James and Harry, he's engaging in this kind of comparative relationship, whereas what he should be doing is saying, that's horrible that you were attacked by a Dementor, right? And then if Harry is like, how was your summer? Sirius can be like, you know, it's been tough. And I think you can be honest, but it's not not the same as saying, like, our situations are similar because they're not. One of you is an adult and one of you is a child. That's right. I, like when I told my story about Mrs. Hasselbring, if one of my students in one of my classes like complained to me about a grade I gave them, and I was like, oh, you think your grade is bad. <laughs> Listen to this thing that happened to me. There's a power. The power is the difference, right? right. The power difference is the difference. <laughs> Let me tell you about Mrs. That's Hasselbrink right. in the fifth grade. I, know, boy. I understand. You, you gotta... <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I think maybe this can lead us to take a brief detour to Etymology Corner. Ooh, we haven't been there yet today. No, we haven't. It's kind of a, a complex or maybe a confusing etymology because the com part of comparison just means with like alongside or something like that the par is just from the word for equal in latin Mm -hmm. so it's like holding two equal things alongside each other or trying to see if things are equal right and that idea of equality like parity or whatever as the grounds of comparison i think is where we get into this trouble of conflation right because no two people are the same right no two experiences are the same like We can find others' experiences identifiable or find them sympathetic. They can, you know, cue memories in us or whatever. But when you start to kind of impose your own experience or your own understandings upon someone else, like Sirius is doing here, and especially when there's also a power differential, then these comparisons can be hurtful or damaging or at least just miss the mark. Yeah, Matt. I'm wondering if you agree with this. I'm wondering if I agree with this. I'm going to say it out loud and see what I think. But I think the comparison, it is just as able to breed unhappiness among equals, right? Like your fifth grade teacher was comparing you and Dan, who technically you were both children, like you were equals in terms of your power. Yeah. But it's definitely a different kind of bad when someone with more power is comparing themselves 
to someone with less power. I'm just thinking when I was, you know, a teenager, my mom took me to the doctor and it turns out that I was complaining about endometriosis, but this was like 20 years before I would get diagnosed. And so we were telling the doctor what was going on with me. And then the doctor said to my mom, sort of looked at my mom and who was in the office with me. And he was like, you know, people just come in and they just complain to me all day. And my mom was like, that's your job, right? (laughs) But if I had been in the waiting room and said to someone, you think you're in pain, I'm in pain, right? Like these are both bad vibes. They're just different kinds of bad vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a situation with this doctor where, like, all these unique experiences of suffering have just kind of collapsed into a single sort of, oh, they're all complainers, (laughs) (laughs) right? Which is awful for a doctor, but that's conflation, right? That's the kind of comparison where, like, I mean, real comparison, I guess, is where you look closely enough at something that these things that you think are the same, you start to see their differences, right? And so, like, a doctor with slightly better... (laughs) bedside manner, perhaps, <laughs> would like say, yeah, all these people are complaining to me, but I'm the, to spend the time to pay attention and listen to what distinguishes each experience so I can better respond and better treat all these folks. That's what that's what should be happening. And interestingly, that is what Molly, I think, is doing in this argument, because they're arguing over who gets to know more details about the work of the Order of the Phoenix and about the kind of machinations of Voldemort during this summer period. You know, Harry's been looking for information, but hasn't heard anything, but we know something's going on, right? And there, the argument between Sirius and Molly is Sirius says Harry should know. And Arthur's like, yeah, he probably should know. And Lupin's like, he should know something. Sirius wants to tell him everything. Yeah. Because for Sirius, Harry's like his bud. Molly wants to tell him nothing. Because for Molly, Harry's a child who has suffered repeated trauma throughout his life and doesn't need this right now. And also there's the figure of Dumbledore in the background who has said Harry doesn't need to know. But I think Dumbledore's motivations, as we'll learn later, are different than Molly's. I think Molly is looking to Dumbledore for credibility, but I think hers are really like this is a child who needs to be cared for and not exposed to this stuff. Whereas, you know, other things are going on with Dumbledore. But in any case, this is the argument, right? And the line that they have drawn for the Order of the Phoenix is that wizards who are of age and out of school can join the order and can know this information, which basically means that none of the children in the house now can know any of it because Fred and George are of age, but they're not out of school yet. And this is where the argument happens. And this seems to me like what Molly is doing. She's trying to say each of these children is different and has different needs and can know different things, right? And Fred and George are of age, but they're not out of school yet, so they should not know because they're going back to school and all this stuff is happening. And Harry can't know because of all these things, right? And Sirius is flattening it a little bit. Sirius is saying like, no, they can all handle it. Let's just tell them all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the place that she draws that line is the only place where she has the power to, right? She would like to see each of these children you know, distinctly and say, like, Fred and George, you can't hear it for this reason. And Harry, you shouldn't hear it for this reason. And Ron and Hermione for this reason. But her authority is just, like, pulled out from under her constantly. Arthur is essentially like, well, Fred and George are of age. And Sirius is like, it's not your choice whether or not I tell Harry. And he has a right to know. And then Harry takes power from Molly by being like, I'm going to tell Ron and Hermione anyway. And so Molly looks at Ginny and is like, fine, right? Like, you can be different. You can be a child here. And I am going to pull the full weight of my authority on this one child. Poor Ginny, but also good for you, Molly. Ginny is a baby. Yeah, I think I flattened that distinction before a little bit, right? It's 
of age wizards can know, but you can't serve in the Order of the Phoenix until you're out of school, right? So that's the argument she was making for Fred and George, is they can't serve in the Order. So then, yeah, so then they don't need to know. Right. I also feel like she could make better arguments here, right? Because what Molly basically argues in this argument is Dumbledore said no, so no, right? But what what I feel like I hear her saying, she doesn't make this explicit, so I'm probably projecting it upon her, but Ron and Hermione will tell Ginny too. <laughs> right. Right. The, the not Ginny thing to me is her saying like, my child was possessed and abducted by Tom Riddle. Right. We are not going to have a conversation about this man, this monster, like in front of her right now. Like that's how she's going to sleep tonight. Yeah. Her response is very much more like, no, this child does not need to know this regardless of the circumstances. And that's that's where she should take her stand. And she could take her, take her stand on these other the other kids this way as well. But she just kind of leans into Dumbledore's authority, which doesn't carry a lot of weight because Dumbledore is not there. And there are these other technical reasons why these other children can know or just get told anyway in the scene. Yeah, it's really interesting that Harry is the one to like say, yes, I'm going to tell Ron and Hermione. Part of me is like, you little jerk. Be loyal to Molly. (laughs) The other part of me is like, you know, he's just being honest. Like he is going to tell Ron and Hermione so he could pretend to side with her. But he's like, sorry, I am going to tell them. Which speaks to the fact that Harry doesn't really see a distinction between himself and Ron and Hermione in this way, right? He's like, we are equals. And we'll see that change, right? He's not going to tell them about what's going on with Umbridge. But this is a moment where he's like, nope, they're my equals. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair. And that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Matt, the last 
last place that I feel like it's really important that we talk about comparison is also with Molly, I guess the star of this chapter, really. She does this little rant of comparison, I think we would both agree, in a not great way with Fred and George. Fred and George are are being obnoxious, right? Like they're apparating two feet away. They're using magic to do things that absolutely do not need magic to be done. They are just showboating. And I mean, they're also like playing. This is like a new exciting power that they have. They are of age so they can legally do magic without the ministry getting them in trouble. And they are just constantly, constantly, constantly doing magic. And Molly says, oh, I don't know why you have to be like this. Bill wasn't like this. Charlie wasn't like this. And Percy wasn't like this. Why do you have to be like this? And what she's not doing in this moment is seeing like, these are playful kids who like love magic. And there's actually something like beautiful in the difference of these two really special children. And instead what she's doing is saying like, my three oldest were reasonable and you all are failing in comparison. Yeah. And it shows that, you know, all of us, as much as Molly is on the right side at the end of this chapter, all of us do these kinds of things where we flatten, right? Where we like take shortcuts in our thinking or shortcuts in our arguing. We we make these comparisons. But this there is that flattening too. She's like reducing the kind of the distinctiveness of what makes Fred and George special, what makes them special to this family. And you can also, in her comment, by making this list of kids, you can also see, because she says, you know, Charlie never did this, Bill never did this, Percy, and then she stops. Because, you know, what's hiding behind all this is these kids aren't all the same. And Percy has recently broken the family's heart because he's also different than Bill and Charlie, even if he was not disobedient in the way that Fred and George are a couple of years ago, like he's doing something very different and arguably more egregious now or more hurtful now. So, like... Even while she's making the argument, she has to stop and it falls apart because there already is this difference. All these sons are not the same and it's all not the same experience with them. Yeah, I love this idea that comparison is flattening. I think that this is such a helpful way to think about comparison. But I'm also like, sometimes comparison is good, right? I'm just like thinking about science. Like we need categorization. We need, I mean, you know, endometriosis. My endometriosis presents differently than other people's, but thank goodness doctors like see similarities in it. And we can learn from past people's treatments as to how I should be treated. Right. I think this is the thing. I think insofar as comparison helps you pay better attention, get more particular, attend to the specificity of each thing in its distinctiveness, then comparison's good, right? It's like these things that appear to be the same, we look at them more closely and figure out how different they are, right? And that that's where comparison's useful. When it goes the other direction, when you take things that are different, but force them to be the same in your mind for the sake of ease or convenience or to harm the person that you're doing this to, right, or the thing you're doing it to, then comparison's harmful, right? I think it can move in both directions. I think what we ought to do is try to have it only move in the one direction. Like when we think things are really similar, we can acknowledge that they are similar and they can still be similar after we've done our comparison, but the, com- the virtue of the comparison is in drawing out what makes them unique and distinctive in themselves, right? There was a big argument about this in the study of religion, in comparative religion, right? Because one of the things about Comparison is like you always take a view from where you are. There's no view from nowhere, right? And so if you're a 
Christian person doing comparative religion, you're always going to be a Christian person looking at another religion, right? And so a lot of the critiques became like, well, you're you're just imposing your own idea upon the other thing. You're doing violence to the other thing, right? I had a colleague here who was my teacher, and she said that she does comparative religion, and she got criticized after she gave a talk at a conference. And the person said, like, doing comparison in religion is like pulling the spleens out of two birds just to look at the spleens, but you kill the birds in the process, right? Mm -hmm. But her response was like, how did you know they were both spleens? Right. (laughs) Right? Like, there is a similarity there. Like, you don't want to do violence to the thing, but recognizing that things are similar does get us some way towards understanding. Right. But it doesn't get us all the way. Like the rest of the way that understanding is like, okay, now we have to pay attention to how they are different, how they're distinctive. And I think that's when comparison really does its good work. When it only goes as far as saying these things are the same, then you erase distinctiveness. But when it uses the similarities as a launching point to find out what's different, that's where it does good work. So Matt, this is going to be our last Lectio Divina for a little while. I've selected a sentence for us to do our close reading with, and here it is. Because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment, said Sirius. So step one of Lectio Divina, the way that we do it, is we look closely at the sentence and wonder what is literally going on. For context, this is when Harry, Sirius, and everybody who's been sort of approved to have this conversation are sharing the information that Molly is so against the kids knowing. And Harry has asked the question, how come Voldemort isn't killing people? Now that Voldemort is embodied, why isn't he wreaking havoc? And this is Sirius's answer, right? He doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment. But is there anything else that's literally going on in the sentence? One of the things about this is that we don't actually know why Voldemort is laying low. Like, it's a pretty good guess that that's why Voldemort is laying low. But we don't actually know what's going on, at least not from the information we're given in this chapter. I mean, the other thing that's going on is that they are telling the kids, apart from Ginny. Like, (laughs) Molly has lost the argument, and a lot of this information is being revealed to Harry and the other kids, apart from Ginny. Yeah, and I think that once we're in this scene, I agree with Molly more and more. Like, how nice would it be for these kids if they just didn't have to worry about this this year? If they were told, do you know what, guys? Don't worry about it. Adults are on it. Why don't you just pay attention to your studies? Yeah, it's this weird thing because they are part of the Order of the Phoenix, but they're not. Right. Right. Come to our headquarters and clean out the house so we can use it and stay upstairs while we have our meetings and have dinner with us and and know that we are in the middle of this escalating confrontation and we depend upon your services because they're the ones making the house livable, Right. But also, we're not going to, you're actually not part of it, <laughs> right? There's a little bit of, yeah. you know, I mean, to a lesser degree, but this idea that, like, kids can't handle it, which is what the series as a whole kind of gives the lie to when it is the children of Hogwarts who actually overwhelm and, and overthrow Voldemort in the end. Like, the Order of the Phoenix is doing a similar thing, which is like, yeah, we need your help, but we're not going to acknowledge it as official help. You're not officially in until you're of age and out of school and all these things. In the meantime, you just do all the other things like carry the dishes and clean out the boggarts that we don't have time to do while we're having our important conversations. I'm going to just push back real quick. I I think (laughs) saying to a child like, 
you clear the table, you chop the tomatoes, but it's not your responsibility to pay for the groceries. And you don't have to actually worry about how expensive the groceries are. Like if I decide that we can afford them, don't worry about it. Right? Like these are distinctions with differences. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is not to disagree with you because you're absolutely right. But what I was thinking is when you said in the comment before, when you said, wouldn't it be nice if they could if they could just not think about this stuff, that's hard when they're at 12 Grimald Place. Totally. Right? Like, if they really want the kids not involved, they should have them not involved. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Send them to summer camp, obviously. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. They could all be hanging out with the Grangers. <laughs> the Grangers seem great. They're going to give them some that's helpful right. teeth taken care of info. Absolutely. It could be like summer abroad in Muggleland. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right? Step two of Lectio Divina is allegory. And the way that we do that is that we ask ourselves what other stories this reminds us of. So I will read it one more time. Because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment, said Sirius. It reminds me of Jane Eyre. You know, there's a scene where Jane is the governess at this house and her boss, Rochester, is in love with her, but is acting like he isn't. And he has all of these like upper crust, you know, fancy people over and he wants Jane in the room because he just likes it when she's around. And so he's like, come hang out. And she's like, no, we are in different classes. I do not want to hang out, right? Like I am going to majorly suffer by comparison in my handmade dress, you know, and my simple hair with these women who have dresses designed specifically for them and, you know, maids who do their hair for them. And so she tries to hide behind the curtains, even though she's in the room, right? She literally is like, I do not want any attention. I have been told I have to be in this room, but she just really does her best to literally hide behind a curtain. And yeah, we know that this is something that Charlotte Bronte did in real life, too. She would go over to her friend Elizabeth Gaskell's house and hide behind the curtains when people would come over. Matt, what about you? What other stories does this remind you of? Because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment, said Sirius. I took a couple of very long international flights recently, so I watched a lot of movies on these flights. And one of the flights, what I was in the mood for was movies I liked that I'd already seen. Yeah. And Delta had The Sting, the Robert Redford, Paul Newman classic. I and just I like, rewatched oh, that. Would be great. Did you really? Yeah. So did I. <laughs> and like that, the whole thing about that movie is not being paid attention to until you want to be paid attention to, right? Like yeah. it's a it's a con, <laughs> and so it's it's all about hiding in plain sight. But also, they want this person to know that he's been conned in the end because they're doing it as a kind of revenge. And so they like there's a point at which they want to be found out, but they can't be found out before then, right? Or when they're okay with being found out, at least when it's too late. What a perfect film. Yeah, it's a great movie. So step three, Matt, we ask ourselves, what does this remind us of in our own lives? Because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment, said Sirius. I mean, what it reminds me of, this is so silly, but I am currently shopping for a dress for my brother's wedding and I'm going to be officiating the wedding. And so I'm trying to figure out what an appropriate dress is for a black tie optional wedding that also like won't draw attention to myself while I'm officiating. And including I don't want to like change outfits because I feel like that draws attention to itself. 
And so I'm trying to figure out an outfit, right, where I can like blend in um, while officiating and right, like being not the center of attention because obviously the bride and groom are, but like holding space and like being on yeah, right. a, a stage in front of 150 people. And so yeah. that tension is sort of alive for me right now. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk about this trip that we just took. We, my family was in Japan for a month. And there's something about the experience of being a tourist where, yeah. like, you you don't want to stand out as a tourist, although that's exactly what you are. And you're actually never fooling anybody, right? But just because humans want to fit in, right, you want to pay the cash register the right way or do the everyday customs that everyone just knows intuitively in a different culture, like the stuff that you have to figure out when you're there, you want to already know it. You don't want to be the clumsy person who's holding up everybody else in the line because you're doing it wrong. That's part of the experience of being a tourist is like, I want to go to a place that's different where I don't know anything and I'm experiencing a different culture. But once you get there, you're like, oh, I don't want to stand out as different <laughs> because I want to fit in, right? That's just, yeah, I, I felt like that was very alive for us. And also I was traveling with our kids and, you know, some of them are like middle school age now when fitting in is the most important important thing and like the exercise of just not being able to fit in at all I think was kind of uncomfortable sometimes but also like really useful sometimes because yeah. they realize that not fitting in is okay and yeah everything works out so step four Matt we ask ourselves what does this make us feel called to and this is a funny one to ask because it's Voldemort right who we are talking about yeah. but yeah so because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself at the moment said Sirius what does this make you feel called to? I think, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think I want to go back to what I was saying about the sting, which is like there's some discernment in knowing when to call attention to yourself and when not to. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm speaking especially from a, a kind of, you know, I have a somewhat public role at the university. I have a lot of privilege and power as a tenured professor at, at Harvard. I think kind of knowing when my position by virtue of itself already calls attention to me, like when to, with, to step away from that, when to give that over to other people. But then also when to use that, the fact that I can get some attention that maybe other people can't, like when to use that. I think it is a question of discernment. And I'm, I'm yeah, I, I think that's one of the tricks of just being a person is deciding, like, when ought I to call attention to myself or to these things? When, I, when ought I to choose not to? And it's complicated by all the different factors and power differentials that we talked about earlier in the episode and where we fit into them. How about you? What it makes me feel called to is to buy the dress that I want to buy and nice. put a blazer over it. <laughs> nice. You know, like it's okay that I want to look great at the party. That's a place yeah. where it's okay to like feel great on the dance floor. Yeah. But I shouldn't be calling attention to myself while officiating. And so I'm going to, I'm going to get that little black dress, but I'm going to get yeah. a blazer for over it. I love it. That's what it makes me feel called to. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Matt. That's great. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Matt, this week's voicemail is from Katie, and we gave everybody who came to camp the opportunity to record a voicemail. So Katie got to record this live with the AJ Yaramas. My name is Katie. I live in the Chicago area. My pronouns are she, they, and my blessing today is for don't call her Nymphadora Tonks. In addition to being the child of blood trader Andromeda Black and muggle-born Ted Tonks, our Tonks is a metamorphmagus, which, while we don't know how those folks are treated in the wizarding world, if half-giants, werewolves, centaurs, and other sentient humanoids are anything to go by, probably not very well. Despite this, she channeled the energy of the Marauders and the Weasley twins while in Hufflepuff House, spreading chaos, joy, and gender play slash flexibility. After finding a kindred spirit in her first cousin once removed Sirius Black and losing him within the same year, she found a partner in fellow outcast and queer-coded shapeshifter, Remus Lupin. A lot of queer folks, particularly trans and non-binary folks, see Tonks as a representative of the queer community. She is constantly called a name she doesn't want to be called. She had to work harder than everyone else just to get by, becoming the youngest member of both the Aurors and in the Order of the Phoenix, spending her time trying to keep everyone entertained and together while staying true to herself and beliefs. And like so many others in our queer community, she is killed while still very young by a bigoted movement out to eradicate her and her loved ones, leaving behind a mourning mother and now a parentless child. So my blessing is for Tonks and all the members of the queer community, both still present and departed. It's really hard out there right now, but the battle is not yet lost and there are still sparks of joy to be found. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. Katie, thank you so much for that voice memo. I mean, you said it all and you said it better than I could ever say it. So thank you for your voice memo and for coming to camp and for sharing this with our whole community here on the podcast. Here, here. Now is the time in our podcast when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. This week, a listener near Nashville sent in the names of the victims of the shooting at Covenant Grade School in Nashville, and so we're going to remember their names now. Evelyn Deekhouse, nine. Hallie Scruggs, nine. William Kinney, nine. Cynthia Peake, 61. 
Catherine Kuntz, 60. Mike Hill, 61. May their memory be a blessing and a call to action. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Tonks because Tonks is a klutz and so am I. And I do not like it about myself how klutzy I am. This is not something that I find endearing or charming about myself. I break things. I am constantly covered in bruises. I spill. It is like not pleasant. And I feel like being a klutz is often portrayed, especially in romantic comedies, is like cute. And I feel like Tonks, right? Like Tonks is excluded from certain things because of her klutziness. Molly is like, no, no, please do not help. And I would like to thank Tonks for representing me in fiction. And I know it's a struggle. I know it's a struggle. What about you, Matt? I'd like to bless Molly, but not for any of the reasons that we already talked about why Molly was great this week so far. A few years ago, I had a student who wrote a thesis on the domestic work that supports political movements mm -hmm. and how, like, you know, when you're organizing and calling people action, you still need coffee and donuts to, to get yourself going. And people do that work. People do that labor. And it's often highly gendered. And I just want to call attention to Molly, who makes dinner for everybody. Mm -hmm. She is kind of coordinating this whole big process to feed a large group of people every day at this house. And the fact that she has some magic and the knives can chop by themselves makes it easier, but not easy, right? She still is coordinating this, this big effort. And these meetings can only happen because people are having their basic needs like food, shelter, warmth, comfort met. And it seems like Molly is the one in charge of all that. So blessings to Molly. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like anyone assigned this to her. Yeah. 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 Next week, we're going to be reading Book 5, Chapter 6, The Noble and Most Ancient House of Black with Jackson Bird to the theme of risk. Matt, just a few reminders before we give our thanks. You, me, and Casper Turkyle are doing a virtual live show in October. Everybody, you can buy your tickets by going to NotSorryWorks.com. It is going to be a night of silliness and joy and meaning making. And I am so excited. Also, we have a writing a romance novel class, our annual class now, Matt. And everybody, you should sign up at NotSorryWorks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Katie for this week's voicemail, Lara Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. She would ask us to read stuff. She asked us priest assignments, and we had homework in that class. It was she would ask you to read stuff in reading class. Yes, yes. <laughs>